the night. I am Matt Lazarus, and welcome to another episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our ever-growing list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight? Matty boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. And it sounds like madness. The voices <laughs> in my brain. Reading a whole bunch of books about crazy folks this week. We are. I'm going to take a brief moment aside, because despite them probably never hearing this, right before we started recording, I just got some really wonderful news that I need to put out there in the universe. What's that, Matt? My brother, Michael? And his wife Whitney are pregnant with their second baby, and I'm Yay! just real excited. And I just want to shout that out to the world. And someday, when you know that little child is old enough to listen, they'll be like, "Hey, I talked about you the day we found out that you were coming into this world." Welcome to not quite the world yet, but we're getting there. New baby Lazowitz. We baby lasers. Yes. Pew uh, pew probably not the best episode to introduce to a, a small child as we are in an episode of madness but before we get into that madness also we have a new patreon backer to thank oh we are chock full of good news this week we are so let's say thanks to writer and editor at our online home comics xf zach rabberoff Zach. hey zach he's good people is and we are excited to have you on board this week over in new comics land detective comics is going weekly in a story that's focusing on the new arkham tower so we're going back into the past to look at the roots of menace and madness that is arkham asylum something 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 boats beat back into the past unceasingly something so we're going to start with one of the seminal texts of Arkham Asylum. Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth. An original graphic novel written by Grant Morrison with art, pencils, inks, and colors by Dave McKean. Letters by Gaspar Saladino. Edited by Karen Berger and Art Young. Cover date is November of 1989. In this fully painted graphic novel, Batman is called to enter Arkham after the inmates have taken over the asylum and descends into madness in a narrative paralleled with the journals of the asylum's founder, Amadeus Arkham. This is a book. And that, that is a truthful statement. It is 100% a book that you can read. Well, I, I take that back. 86% of it it is a, a book that you can read. The other 14% is lettering that is uh, illegible. Illegible? Unreadable. There we go. You know, I, I, I think this might be our first major divergence on some points. On that point, I will not disagree with you. The Joker's lettering is painful on the eyes. Yeah, and, and again, let me just... Put this out to all of the letterers out there who are listening. I know we have a big, you know, comics lettering fan base out there. In this new year 
of 20 double deuce. Let me just ask you, do less. Just just do less. I understand that you are all are artists and I appreciate that. But when you take big swings, 75% of the time they don't work. And the other 25% of the time, I'm just like, oh, that's kind of neat, but it doesn't add a whole lot. The other 75%, when you take a swing and you miss, it turns what can be a great, fun, beautiful book into unreadable trash. So resolution for the letterers out there in 20 double deuce, do less. Love, Will. Our creators here, we have already talked about Grant Morrison Morrison has a giant history with Batman. This is their first major Batman work. Batman might have appeared in some small fashion in some of the other things Morrison wrote, but this is Morrison's first major Bat project. And we've talked about it. There are very few writers who swing bigger than Grant Morrison. And for a book that came out in the late 80s from a major publisher, this is a big swing. Oh, yeah. This is not what you would expect from a DC Comics book. It is interesting to point out when we read that creative team, the editor here is Karen Berger, best known for being the person who shepherded vertigo while this isn't necessarily a mature reader's book it has more in common with a vertigo book than with whatever was going on in batman in the early 1989 yeah and it's a a sign similar to what you're saying there uh, that this has been retconned into a black label book so i think there's some recognition uh, you know in dc currently that this is Something that you'd want to put off on its own little island. Yeah, and you could have easily put that on the Vertigo label too. Let's see, what what did you say right before that? Because I, I had something that I was going to jump in there with and then it uh, left me. Morrison's first Batman work. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I was going to say that if this had been on the main Batman title, we were going to have to do another role play session. <laughs> As always, you pitch something like this to me for a main Batman line, I'm going to tell you, get the fuck out of my office. This was a hardcover original graphic novel. So this does give you, or give the creators, more of a wild chance. And teaming Morrison with Dave McKean, who's not known for doing a lot of sequential storytelling mckean is probably best known if you ask the general public as the cover artist on the sandman he's done three at least three graphic novels with neil gaiman violent cases signal to noise and mr punch plus various children's books with gaiman plus his creator own book cages and one issue of Hellblazer with Gaiman, issue 27, Hold Me, Gaiman's only issue on Hellblazer. But I think people more know McKean for covers and for art 
outside of comics, album covers, things like that. This art, I love this, the art on this book. I think it's fascinating. I think it's not what you'd expect, but I think it's beautiful in a lot of places. Beautiful being a relative term because it's disquieting in a lot of places as well. You know, normally I am I am a big mark for painted comics, but this one just didn't it didn't speak to me. It didn't it didn't hit me in that same spot. And I just maybe because it, it doesn't feel crisp or or very vibrant, you know. I, I don't know whether it's it's getting you know this digitized version some years after it was you know after, after it was put out obviously uh, i saw that uh, the new black label version has i don't know what they called it like restored or remastered art uh maybe that would have hit me in a better spot but i'm not going to say it's not good because that does feel a touch blasphemous but it just it did not speak to me in that way that say thrill killer last week spoke to me by the way for our listeners i really went out of my way to read this without any annotations without any of the stuff you can immerse yourself in when you're reading morrison or Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman, these writers that draw from all these influences. I was trying to take this book as it is without that. Someday, maybe we'll do some a bonus episode or Patreon bonus content or something where we read this with or other books like this with all that kind of information. But I wanted to take this as it is on the page without any kind of deep extra dive into it. So I might be saying things that you're like, well, if you had read so-and-so's annotations, like that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to take this as an artifact. And granted, I've read this a couple of times before. Is this your first time on this one, Will? Yep. Okay. So yeah, I was just, I, I want to say that out of the gate because it could be, I might be missing things that are obvious if you've read any of the cottage industry that is Grant Morrison annotations. But I'm not, I didn't want to do that with this experience. And and let me break in here as always. If you come for Matt, be fucking ready. Like get your get your good shoes on and uh and your good gear because he's gonna whip you. I'm just I'm just saying, like you you think Matt doesn't know what he's talking about, and you're gonna be wrong. Me, on the other hand, I'm a fucking moron, as always. So yeah. You know, I will you can, always. You can be at Matt. You can be mad at me. You can think that I'm a dumb dumb, but not Maddie Lasers. He's always on target. Uh, I, I will always just point out that I disagree that you're a dumb dumb. But we we will have that, that again. There might be a bonus episode where we argue that point. But we're, we're here to talk about <laughs> Arkham Asylum. <laughs> we are here to talk about Arkham Asylum. This as a a concept, the idea of Batman having to enter. Arkham and face down the inmates who are literally running the asylum at this point is an interesting 
concept. And it's also a snapshot of who the inmates in Arkham are at this point, as most Arkham stories are. We'll see that in the second story and not necessarily in the third, as the third sort of crafts its own group of inmates. But this one is, you know, you've got the Joker, you've got Two-Face, you've got Doctor Professor Milo, who's there briefly, you've got Clayface 3, Dr. Destiny, Scarecrow, Mad Hatter, Maxi Zeus, and Killer Croc. So mostly big names with a couple of minor ones. I mean, Professor Milo and Maxi Zeus aren't exactly the biggest names. And Clayface 3. But still a bunch of mostly villains you're familiar with. On top of Morrison's first time really writing Batman, it's also their first time writing the Joker. And the beginning of that super sanity, Joker's mind constantly evolving with the world around him concept that Morrison wrote in our previous Morrison, The Clown at Midnight. This lays the seeds for what Morrison will do with the Joker there. This is very much proto-Morrison. This isn't the same Morrison or the same take on these characters that we'll see when they come on to the ongoing Batman or when they're writing Justice League. There's a couple of moments where I'm like, hmm. when towards the end, we find out who's behind this whole breakout in Arkham. And when someone dies, is, is killed even to help defend Batman. Batman he says, deserved it. Yeah, he got what he deserved is not Batman as... I tend to interpret him, and I don't think it's Batman how Morrison will later interpret him. But here, it, it was a line that kind of struck a tin ear, made a tin ear for me. There was something earlier in the book, too, that didn't seem quite right coming from Batman. This is toward the beginning. You know, when he just enters the asylum, he's talking to the Joker take your filthy hands off me, filthy degenerate. That that just doesn't, that doesn't seem very Batman-y. And Joker is flaming in this story. Darling, right? Or sweetheart? Lots of darlings and sweethearts. And he grabs Batman's ass at one point. Again, similar to Dark Knight Returns, and I think even a level up from Dark Knight Returns, it takes that subtext and ratchets it up to pretty much text, which is not Morrison's take on Joker later, which is not to say that this is wrong necessarily, but it's, again, an interpretation that I think is a little too surface which for morrison is a weird thing because morrison is many many things as a writer but surface is not one of them no i mean there's a lot of parallels in this story the two narratives and we haven't really talked about the amadeus arkham 
narrative yet. And the way these two narratives sort of wind in and out of each other is really an interesting narrative take. And I think the Amadeus Arkham stuff is fascinating. And I do like the... I read whatever version is up on DC Universe Infinite, which is, I believe, the Black Label version. And while I didn't dig too deeply into the back matter because I said I didn't want to, I wanted to read this pretty much as it is, I looked a little bit. And I'm glad that Morrison immediately calls out in their, not introduction because it's after the book, but the introduction to the back matter, that the origin of Arkham Asylum and stuff about Amadeus is from Who's Who, written by the legendary late Len Wein. Morrison embellishes on it. He expands it. But the basic concept of Mad Dog Hawkins killing Amadeus Arkham's family, Amadeus Arkham killing him, and then the one throwaway line about killing his stockbroker after the stock market crash in 1929 is Len Wein. I had been 99% sure of that. And I had to look, I was trying to find that particular point online. And there were a few places where I was where I found it where it was like the origin of Arkham Asylum was created by Grant Morrison. And then I was like, I'm 99% sure that's not right. I'm pretty sure that was from Who's Who. And Morrison immediately calls it out, which great. The Amadeus Arkham stuff is super creepy. Yes. And is great. I really think Morrison does a great job expanding on that, on giving you an idea of Amadeus's, I'd say, slow descent into madness. But by the end, you get the, you kind of realize that he was pretty much mad from the beginning and then has this period where he sort of maybe stabilized or repressed that madness and then things pushed him back over the edge and the occult stuff here is something that will come into play in a later story that we'll discuss tonight but the ties between Arkham Asylum and the occult are in the DNA or the mortar of Arkham Asylum it's interesting to view Amadeus and Bruce as sort of parallel characters in a way, both people maybe driven to madness in one way or another, and certainly Amadeus uh, losing the struggle with his. For me, I think the Arkham storyline worked more, again, this is my personal read, because there was more exposition there was more storytelling there was more more of a narrative through line that was easy to follow the other stuff in the actual asylum itself it just seemed you know there's not a lot of exposition going along there's not a lot of character development it's just it's sort of presented and again i'm not going to say that it's bad but i found the arkham stuff much more engaging than the other half of the book. And and this is, again, I feel kind of bad referencing something that I'm 
fairly certain I've heard Morrison say in an interview or something without digging to actually find the quote. But there is something I'm pretty sure where Morrison said that that is supposed to parallel Dante's Inferno with Batman descending into the levels of hell with Joker as his Virgil as the guide. And having that in the back of my head, when Batman first enters the asylum, one of the first things you see as he crosses the threshold is a statue of Anubis, the Egyptian god of the dead, one of the gods of the dead. So seeing that, seeing that reminded me, oh yeah, this is supposed to be a descent into hell, basically. So that helped me kind of have that. But I'm not sure, again, how much that forwards the narrative. I just thought it was an interesting point. The, I mean, most of the villains don't do a lot here to forward the narrative. They seem to be set dressing or something to allow Morrison to expound. I mean, Mad Hatter does next to nothing. Scarecrow has no dialogue. The thing with Two-Face is interesting. The fact that- Fucked up. Yeah. The the one psychiatrist, Dr. Adams, sometimes you have to break someone to rebuild them. It's like, if any psychiatrist I was dealing with ever said that, I'd be like, can I get another psychiatrist, please? I'm going to need a citation for that, Grant. Yeah. The, the idea that they face, okay, everything he does is dependent on the flip of the coin. So let's give him a die. So now it's six choices. And now a tarot deck. So he's completely crippled. It's, ooh. Uh, Maxi Zeus has a page-long, almost tone poem. Which, while interesting, that was something where I was like, I need annotations. I need to either read this half a dozen times or I need annotations from someone who understands the concepts that Morrison is putting out here better than I do. And there's only so many hours in the day. Dr. Destiny in his wheelchair doesn't do much. And I'm fairly certain this is Dr. Destiny post-Sandman. So he's a complete mess at this point. One thing that did make me uncomfortable and is very not Morrison, there's quite a bit of uncomfortable misogyny in this book. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, that was weird. A lot of uses of bitch derogatorily towards Dr. Adams, Mad Hatter saying something about the little blonde whores. That's, one of the interpretations of Tetch, that he is a pederast who is sort of fighting that urge by doing all sorts of other things. And frankly, Lewis Carroll was, or Charles Dodgson, his real name, was a creep. He was a, as far as everyone knows, he never touched any of the little girls that he photographed in revealing lingerie. But he photographed prepubescent girls in revealing clothing as art. He was... Matt, that's fucked up. Yes! He was a absolute... This is one of these things that in Victorian England, that was acceptable. 
it's still and again there's again no evidence of anyone of him having done anything physically but him subsuming it through art specifically alice liddell the young girl who would inspire alice in wonderland so so i'm gonna i'm gonna stay for the record it's bat chat policy lewis carroll was a pedophile he he, the desires were there whether he acted upon it or not there is no legal you know but getting it he's long dead so exactly exactly we can absolutely defame him because uh as i told my students you know for our exam review a dead person has no reputation to protect anyway yeah yeah um there's yeah i I think we've we've hit a lot of the the high points there the the final bit about amadeus carving the incantation to imprison the insanity with his own fingernails into his cell yeah that's fucked up that's real Uh, fucked up yeah there is by the way probably should say a clear inspiration for the arkham asylum video game from some of this, that hidden room is a spot you can find in the video game. And the whole concept of his journals. Yes. Very present in the game, too. Yep. And the one other thing I will throw out as one of Morrison's proto-ideas, the fact that Arkham's mother, who he wound up killing, and there's a whole Norman Bates thing with him in the mother's wedding dress, that the villain of the piece in the end, Dr. Cavendish, who freed the inmates, is wearing, but that she was driven mad by a giant bat makes me think of the bat demon Barbatos, who becomes a big thing in Morrison's run that then Snyder takes for metal. But Barbatos, this bat thing, which also is some of the Peter Milligan uses in Dark Knight, Dark City that we'll get to someday as well. That's the the bat as a, a demonic motif in Gotham is a logical extension of Batman, but it's something that Morrison will take and they'll use considerably later in their works. I'm basically saying that this book, while not directly linked to that, all those later works, clearly has Morrison experimenting with some of the ideas that they'll really play with during their extended run on Batman. I think that's everything I've got. You got anything else, Will? Oh, I don't think so. So I guess that means it's time. Two, put it on the board. All right. So we are currently at a point where we have 45 stories on our big God list. damn. Number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 10 is Beautiful People from Detective Comics, number 821. Number 20 is Batman Year Three from Batman Volume One, numbers 436 to 439. Number 30 is Death Cast the Deciding Vote and The Silent Night of Batman from Batman Volume One, number 219. Number 40 is Batman Gotham by Gaslight. And down at the bottom is Batman and Superman versus vampires and werewolves. Ugh. So 
this one, I think, is going to be an inverse of our first story from last time, where you wanted to go higher on Thrill Killer than I did. I think I'm going to want to go higher on Arkham Asylum than you are. So I think we're going to wind up in compromise territory again, which is why you have two people. That's right. We got to compromise to uh, move the show along, to get to our other two books. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll start. Okay. It's the top half. Yes. I think that's fair for its place in history, for its ambition, for its weirdness. I got no problems. Top half. All right. So that so that means we're above middle of the middle ground, which is super heavy at number twenty three. My instinct would be, as your instinct was to put Thrill Killer in the top ten towards the bottom of the top ten. My instinct for Arkham Asylum is that same area. I'm willing to admit that that will probably need to come down some from there. But my first instinct was probably. Again, where you originally had Thrill Killer, which is the 910 area after Five Way Revenge. I got no problems with that. Again, I, I can respect this as historically significant, even though it didn't, again, it didn't straighten my pencil. Okay. Um, I think it definitely beats beautiful people. As much as I love beautiful people, as much as, you know, Paul Dini writes a fun script and J.H. Williams' art is gorgeous, it's a trifle. Yeah. So I, this is considerably more significant. Then we have Six Fingers, which is a, one of your babies, which is fair. And I think the Breton art is smoother and cleaner than this. However, I will also say it is when it comes to a point in Batman history is also something of a trifle. Indeed it is. But I'm not sure if I can put it above the Joker's five-way revenge that this wouldn't exist without five-way revenge. Yeah, I I think we are getting to a point where if you're going to crack the top 10, you just have to be historically significant. I mean, that's that's all of the stuff we have, starting with number eight. You know, Black and White Volume 1, Dark Knight Returns. Maybe we pushed it a little bit with Annual Number 2 and Cold Days, but, you know, those are very recent, strong works from King, his very strongest. And I, I think they're going to they're gonna go down well in history. I, I think um, Cold Days absolutely, absolutely will. I think some of these days, will be remembered as one of King's best. I think we might have been bullish on that, but I think one of the problems with that one is the story that was from episode two and the next few episodes didn't have anything that would have beaten it. And we did prefer it to Dark Knight. So I think it became kind of like, okay, that's above Dark Knight Returns. Hey, and if not for Gilda, I mean, Long Halloween would be higher for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking Gilda Dent. Yep. So I think I'm comfortable with making this our new number nine. Works for me, brother. Okay, that was. Whew. I was. I, I, I was. I'm not going to complain that there wasn't a bigger fight 
but I thought we might have been at a point where there might have been that bit of contention that Dan has been waiting for us to finally find. After. Fuck you, Dan. Fuck you, Dan. I go along to get along, god damn it. Okay, so that means number our new number nine is Arkham Asylum, a serious house on a serious earth. Okay. That means we're now moving on to our second story. Momentary aside here before we do, because I understand if you're reading the logical progression of Arkham Asylum stories, the next story logically would be Batman Shadow of the Bat numbers one to four, The Last Arkham. But I have a whole episode with that as the centerpiece later on, featuring the creative team of Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle one of the major Batman creative teams of the 90s. And that is probably one of, if not their biggest story together. So I have that one sort of pulled for its own episode and I want to really hone in on that one later. So that one was not the story that we're going to be doing for number two. The second story will instead be Mad Men Across the Water. This is from Showcase 94, numbers three to four. Writer is the aforementioned Alan Grant, with pencils by Tim Sale, inks by Jimmy Palmiotti, colors by Bernie Miro, letters by Ken Brzezinak, edited by Neil Posner and Denny O'Neill. The cover dates here are March and April of 1994. In this story, in the aftermath of the events of Nightfall, Arkham Asylum has been pretty much destroyed, and the Inmates recaptured by Batman have now been imprisoned on Blackgate Island. Jeremiah Arkham has come to somewhat loggerhead with the governor of the island, and they have decided to settle their dispute with a softball game between the inmates of Arkham and the inmates of Blackgate. As one does. Madness ensues from there. Uh, They play uh, what? three quarters of an inning maybe uh, there might have been some, some time in there we, we didn't see but i i don't think they, they didn't get anywhere near a whole game in before everything goes to complete shit the the prisoners scored one and then the the arkham inmates uh got up to bat and they loaded the bases and then as you said chaos ensued i i will admit having picked this because I remembered it being an Arkham-centric story. While Batman is discussed, Batman does not necessarily appear in this story, but his shadow does hang over the events. Yeah, the specter of the bat. That's good enough. That's good enough. All right, so before we get into this, I want to derail this with a bit. I think we should field a team of bat villains. So I got, I got my positions here and we're just going to assume baseball. Cause I don't, I don't follow softball. I don't know intricacies of softball. So we're just going to say much, baseball. It's pretty much the same depending on your intramural rules. Usually those, the leagues that are for older men or women have a, a short field position, a 10th player somewhere yeah. in the outfield, in the infield, but most intramural softball or uh, college softball works from the normal nine positions. So, so I'm going to throw out a throw out a position, and I want your villain, and then and then we'll discuss. Okay, pitcher. 
just so everyone knows, there's going to be a lot of silence here that I'm going to cut because I'm going to consider these. I'm going to, I'm going to really think about, are there any known, are we going with purely Arkham villains or can we go with Batman villains outside of the Arkham set? Your Black Gates, your League of Assassins type folk. Well, I think Batman would say that they, they all deserve to be in Arkham. So that, that works. Okay. So pitcher would require strong upper body strength. Deadshot. Interesting. Okay. As a, as a power pitcher. Yeah. Good eye. He's got aim. I, I think Deadshot would be an, would be a good pitcher. He probably would wear his arm out. You'd need some strong relievers, but I think for your, or possibly Deadshot's your closer. Deadshot might be your reliever to come in at the very end of the game and just take out the remaining players. But I think the best pitcher of the Batman villain set would probably be Deadshot. Now, as again, as a, as a power pitcher, a strong arm, you know, somebody's going to come in and throw fire. I like that. For my pitchers, I tend to go crafty. Somebody who's going to go up there with deception and trickery and, uh, you know, just get into a, a, a batter's head and just screw around. I'm going to go Joker. Yeah, okay. I can see that. I mean, he would be completely jerking around with people and you'd never know what, you know, he might give somebody, you know, a meatball right across the, the plate. And he, he lets people score two runs. And then the next guy, he beans for no reason. And then everybody's leery for the next couple of batters. Cause you, you sure. You never know what the Joker is going to pitch it. A, a Joker is a change up. And I have to imagine he would have a really great uh, Mike Messina esque change up. Okay. DH because we're playing uh, American league rules because fuck the national league. <laughs> I do not. I do not. Look, I'm only going to be here for another 40 years or so. I do not care to see one more pitcher bat in my life. Mm. I think we saw him in this in this book, Amygdala. He's big. You know, he wouldn't be skillful in the field because he wouldn't be able to understand the plays. But you need somebody to just swing a bat and hit a ball. Amygdala is a guy who's right there. I almost went with Bane, but Bane is too clever. You don't want to take Bane out of the equation for the field. Exactly. Uh, DH is one of those spots where you can hide somebody who's totally not athletic. I, I considered Bane, but he too is going to be on the field. Let me go with Solomon Grundy. Okay. Yeah, Grundy absolutely fits the same type of role as Amygdala. Hit the ball. That's all you have to do, all you have to worry about. Here's one of the chances to stick somebody who's not particularly athletic. You want some power, first base. Want good reach. Yes. This might be the spot for uh, Scarecrow. He's not terribly athletic, but those long arms, Mm. if all he has to do is be able to reach out and catch a ball he doesn't have to necessarily intercept people like a second baseman or a third baseman he just needs to be able to guard that bag and grab a throw that's over his head Mm, i think that we're gonna lose a lot of power 
When you want at first base, you want some power. I'll go Croc. Big lumbering Jason Giambi style first baseman who is better than you know you'd expect with the glove. You know, okay. I can I can sacrifice a little bit of defense. Second, here you need somebody crafty because this is the bag that is getting stolen to or from the most. You need somebody who, again, head game, someone who can, you know, fake that throw to the pitcher after a, a pickoff attempt and, and snag the guy. This might be the spot for Eddie. This might be Riddler. Ooh. He's, Ooh. Somebody, he's playing mind games with the, with the runners in second. But again, Eddie's not a terribly physical threat. But then again, that would actually benefit him to give him something to do because he, otherwise he doesn't have the, the benefit of being a strong batter necessarily. So the only reason you put somebody out in right field is, again, they're kind of slow, they're kind of lumbering, they're not getting much action, but they're hitting the ball. I think Riddler would be someone who would be distracting He'd be riddling at people when they're on second base and distracting them and causing them to kind of lose the thread while they're there in that prime runner's spot. I like that. And then for all the reasons you said, I think at second, I'm going to go scarecrow. You don't, you don't need a lot of power or even a lot of batting average at your, at your second, but you want a good solid hand in the field. I think he would be that third hot corner. Hot corner. All right. Co-ed, I assume. We're, we're oh, going of course. On this. Of course. So third and shortstop. I'm going, this is the ladies' corner. Ooh. Because these are the spots for the two. Well, hmm. All right. What of two options here for third? Either Talia Al Ghul, quick, life, tough, able to move, or this is the spot for Bane. This is the spot Ooh. for big, but still able to move, a threat in to be able to just immediately drop down and tag out any runner who's sliding into that base. Anybody's got to think, somebody's got to think twice if they're sl- trying to slide in under Bane. Yeah, that's um, that's basically like the Adrian Beltre kind of idea. Big, strong guy with a lot of power over there at third. I like that. Let me see. Who do I want over at third? Uh, you know what? You mentioned Talia. Let's go Papa. Uh, Ray. Okay. He's got a lot of experience. That's true. And you want somebody with that, with experience in the infield. And uh, at short, I want somebody really athletic. Let's do Harley. Okay. See, I was going to, and again, here we're dealing with some semantics on villain or not here. Selena. I was Ooh. going Catwoman at short. Because oh. again, there's nobody who I can think of who is more able to, you know, other than probably Harley, to literally do backflips to grab that hard grounder or 
a, a decent high pop that would fall in that area right in between left field and shortstop, Selena Kyle would be deadly in that spot. And you have to think she's going to use the whip. Yeah. And that, that's going to be good. Okay. As was uh, established in this story, it's Airbud rules. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there's, there's nothing that says you can't use a jetpack. All right. Uh, I think we got to finish, uh, finish this bit. Um, we'll, we'll speed it along. Catcher, for all the reasons we talked about, I want somebody that's not particularly athletic, but maybe some power, a big damn guy who can receive the ball, Bane. Okay. I would... <laughs> Two-Face, also fairly big, fairly athletic, fewer choices. As was shown here, he has a habit of flipping the coin to decide what he's going to do. There are fewer choices for catcher as long as your pitcher is, say, Deadshot and not the Joker. Deadshot's going to be accurate. Deadshot is going to get that. There's not going to be a lot of wild pitches there. If your pitcher is Joker, yeah, you don't want that because there's going to be wild pitches left and right, and Harvey's going to be flipping that coin constantly. As long as it's right to him, Harvey will just return the ball. He doesn't have to really make a choice there. All right. Is it going to be the number one or the number two? That's all we got. One or two. Fastball changeup. Fastball okay, changeup. That's a good point. There is that. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. We've got uh, – uh, who's somebody we haven't mentioned? <laughs> We've got Kite Man coming in. <laughs> Oh yeah, and and he's a and he's a slider, uh, curveball change guy. Oh crap! All right, <laughs> he's got a four seamer and a two seamer. Oh, all right, we got to get Harvey out of there. Um, let's see, uh, corner outfielders. Um, who right. you got? I, I think I'm all out of people. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think of wells. One of the major bat villains. Penguin's the you know third base coach. He's not playing. Oh no, no, Oswald. He wouldn't even play if you asked him. He'd be like, no. rah, rah, rah. Freeze. Actually, Mister Freeze, you put in right field. He's not terribly fast, but that suit gives him strength. He's yeah. there to hit. I like that. So you just put him out in right field. He's not going to get a lot of balls, but when he gets up there, he's able to to really put some weight behind that bat. Ivy could probably go in left field. I think Ivy has some, especially as she's interpreted now in the comics, Ivy ha- can be physically, she's, she's physically well put together. She's probably got some strength. And I, I think Ivy would be able to, you know, move and ke- to catch a ball. And if we play all of our games at Wrigley, we're not losing. <laughs> yes. And that just leaves center field, which is, that's another utility position. That's, you need some speed. You need some, you need a good arm. You need a good, strong arm. 7,000 Batman villains. And how am I not thinking of another major one who, you're not putting the ventriloquist out there. Mr. Scarface would be screaming at him the entire time and he'd be too distracted. Thomas Wayne is the coach, by the way. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely see that. Uh, is he on his bat villain status, but he does pop up in Batman enough. I think we could maybe stretch the definition. Deathstroke. 
Hey, sure. Again, he, you know, he, he maybe never have been, he's been, in, he's been locked up in Arkham. There's a whole arc in the last Deathstroke volume where he was in Arkham. There you go. He, he spent some time in the asylum. He's fought Batman on numerous occasions. Deathstroke, the Terminator uses 99% of his reflex, 99% of his brain, 90% of his brain instead of the 10%, that old apocryphal chestnut. Yeah. He got Deathstroke. You now have a team of supervillains. All right. That was yep. a fun bit and probably, I don't know, more interesting than, than really talking about this book, which was not bad. But once you get past the core concept, it's just, eh, there's not, there's not a, a lot left to it, right? You're, you're, you're moving you know, these Arkham inmates to Blackgate and there, there's, there's an interesting bit like, uh, of, of talking about dignity and and respect for all people understanding that these inmates uh are the 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 people at the asylum have mental illness and and it's treated with some seriousness for i don't know two-thirds of this story and then we get to a baseball game or softball game and it's just like oh okay that that took a turn this is early in jeremiah arkham as a character when he hadn't completely gone down the road of being jaded by all his time working with these people and he was still really thought he could cure them and he was really kind of not a bad guy yet by the time i mean in his current iteration and then before the new 52 when he had gone full supervillain for a little while he loses a lot of that early character development but alan grant who created the character was still writing him as someone who had a heart and a brain and all the other things that dorothy's companions were looking for in <laughs> what's interesting this is a point again right after nightfall so these aren't the villains versions of these villains that we're more familiar with now this is one Riddler at his lowest ebb when he was pretty much a joke villain. In here, he's almost constantly speaking in riddles and he's kind of just sort of pathetic. Yeah, and, that's, that's a good word. And Ivy is full-on sex pot Ivy. We haven't oh, gotten... Fucking hated that. Yeah, we haven't gotten the eco, as much of the eco-terrorist angle, which has been there as a little bit by this point. Uh, it, Neil Gaiman had written the origin of her in Secret Origins that started that, that tied her more into the Swamp Thing and the green stuff. But we're still right around uh, Batman the Animated Series when the eco thing starts becoming more of Ivy's thing than the sex pot thing. But I still don't think it might be the worst sex pot Ivy thing we're going to get to tonight. That, that, that's still coming up in the next story. But Oh, oh, I was getting that confused. My apologies. Yeah, that was, yeah. I, I retract my disgust and save it for the next story. This still has Ivy just sort of, you know, using her sexuality to like bat her eyes at the Blackgate inmates. Hello, just, boys. Right, a lot of that. But it's not full on, oh, there's at least it feels like some agency there 
her manipulating people with her sexuality versus some of the really squeaky stuff we'll get to in the the final story tonight. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's not good, but we'll get there. Uses introduces and kills two Arkham inmates right out of the gate with Sartor and Dr. Faustus, who are introduced in this story and are dead by the end. See ya. Sartor is interesting, and I think I like his use as sort of the catalyst for what happens. But boy, howdy, it feels like that's not a guy who'd belonged in Arkham. Except for maybe the fact that it's high security, so they would be able to keep their eye on someone who has attempted suicide on what seems like almost a daily basis for years. But putting him in Arkham really just makes you think that he's the guy who's in this. We mentioned this in an earlier episode. You liken some with uh, with Joker's five year events, Joker talking a guy, that, that one guy into hanging himself, possibly. You're going to put Sarder in a cell next to joker or someone and they're gonna just be the demon in their ear and get this like the best way to kill yourself is to just take out as many people as you can along the way and then they'll just shoot you that ain't gonna end well no no again i use this phrase for a couple of the other stories that we were just talking about on the list this one's a trifle yeah it is the trifliest of trifles it's fun it's art wise i found it cool to see sale inked by someone else as sale usually inks himself seeing jimmy palmiotti ink sale made it look a little bit different than it normally does but still very recognizably sale also covers on this one by mike mignola one by kyle baker that's some great covers yeah i was gonna mention uh mignola that's uh that's 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 good stuff uh, before we get into anything else i'm just curious what was Showcase 94? Well, the original Showcase, was, that was a tryout book. It was like every issue was a different, basically number one. There were a few things that, but the first appearance of Barry Allen was in a Showcase. The first appearance of Green of Hal Jordan was in a Showcase. In 1993, they brought Showcase back. It's an anthology book. Urban uh, Legends, give or yeah, take. 93... The main story was also was always a bat story, and then there were two backups. Ninety four again, bat character in the main, two backups. Ninety five was it shifted to Superman character in the main and two backups, and the final year they did it ninety six was always a a team up of two characters who wouldn't normally team up, and a couple of backups. Uh, the backups which we're not discussing here. One was the unfortunately named Cyber Rats, who spun out of the Bloodlines annuals and Ted Cord Blue Beetle, who I love, but they aren't particularly, they aren't relevant particularly to the Batman, despite the Cyber Rats being introduced in a Robin annual. Uh, oh, God. Oh, the 90s. when And, uh, and Chuck Dixon was the writer on that one, so, but, uh, you know, fuck him. We, we might wind up discussing them when we discuss that Robin annual, but we're not going to discuss them when it comes to a random backup story in something else. The most notable stories from either of those years of Showcase, Nightfall parts 13 and 14 are in Showcase 93's number, I believe, 7 and 8. It was the Two-Face story that was part of Nightfall. And 94... I believe it's eight and nine 
is the origin of the ventriloquist, which had never been revealed before. Um, and I just want to say this for all of the listeners out there. Uh, again, you know, Matt's going to edit this and clean it all up. He takes out all the pauses whenever we have to stop and do some shit. There were no pauses in there. So again, when I tell you this guy knows his shit, do not fuck on him. This is exactly why. I can ask, hey, what the fuck was Showcase 94? And he not only tells me about 94, but tells me 93, 94, 95, and 96. And he didn't have to look it up. I, you know, Again, I can watch him. You're just listening to this. But I see he's still there right in his comfy bed. He's not pouring over the internets. Man knows this shit. Do not fuck on him. I don't think we've, we've mentioned it in WMQ and I on a fairly regular basis. Yes, I record my podcast in my my bed because it's one of those that's adjustable and it comes up and it becomes a seat and it means that my cat curls up on my feet because she loves to curl up sometimes she gets on my lap and is full on in front of the laptop but usually she's on my feet and is just very comfy and i'm always willing to give my cat Bess the opportunity to curl up on my legs and yeah it's it's she loves to be on the bed at night and it's like i'm rewarding my cat for being a very very good very very sweet and dumb girl by recording yes. my podcast in my adjustable bed and full sit-up mode. But I think, and this is, I don't, the one thing I didn't remember was if this is maybe the first appearance of Governor Zerhart of Blackgate, he does pop up a few times during this era, but I'm fairly certain this is his first appearance. And he will show up, as was often the case in the 90s. Yeah, and I was right. Look it up quickly, and this is his first appearance. And he'll show up again in various Blackgate-centric stories. This might be, this is not Blackgate's first appearance, but this is the one that I feel like really started to define what Blackgate looked and felt like, making it basically Alcatraz. Yeah, yeah, there's there's no getting away from the the Alcatraz. Like it's on an island, it's it's unescapable. If you try to swim it, you're gonna drown. If you try to like climb down from it, you're gonna, you know, fall and die. And this is another opportunity. Alan Grant Scotsman, prisons do not have governors, right? They have wardens. That's that's the word you were looking for here. I can't tell you how confusing that was Was when I'm reading this, you know, it, this, this discussion between Jeremiah and the governor. And I'm like, what's going on here? I don't understand. Oh, what Grant means is warden, warden. That's what you're looking for. Fucking Scotsman. You, you, you don't see me trying to like explain the Highland games or something, or if I did, I would do some fucking research, but wait, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just an American. I'm just a redneck. Ugh. <laughs> On that note, I, I hold, you- I hold grudges, Matt. I hold grudges. Uh, the things written 30 years ago. Yes. I think there are some inconsistencies. But also remember, Alan Grant did co-write Batman Judge Dredd, Judgment on Gotham. So he's a a good writer. I just, you're right. Sometimes a little bit of editing of some of those Scottish ticks might have been helpful. I think we've reached the end on this one. 
Ah, see here, see here. Step up to the plate. Step up to the plate. Put it on the big board. I think we're solidly in the middle of the list here. Yeah, I'm thinking middle third. We're above 40 because 40 is Scarecrow, which is the the Doug Mench, Kelly Jones, Scarecrow story. That's when things start to go downhill on this they list. Get bad. Pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. So we're above that. I'm thinking somewhere in the upper 30 or low digits 30s. Yeah. Yeah. This, this very easily has the same kind of tone and sentiment and import of something like death cast the deciding vote i'm i was possibly right now so death cast the deciding vote is 31 i was thinking i was thinking below that i was thinking this becomes either our new number 32 or our new number 33 32 is faces uh two-faced three-parter from legend of the dark knight by matt wagner 33 is last chance the dead man story done in the batman the animated series style i think this is better than both of those yeah i i can agree with that i i wasn't sure if it was above both or in between but i think i'm perfectly happy to pop this in as our new number 32 Madman. all right Okay, now on to our final story of the night. That final story is Arkham Asylum Living Hell, a six-issue miniseries written by Dan Slott with pencils and inks by Ryan Souk, colors by Lee Lawfridge, letters by Michael Heisler, edited by Dan Raspler and Valerie Diorazio with cover dates of July to December of 2003. This story follows Warren White, a crooked financier who winds up imprisoned in Arkham Asylum. We meet various inmates of the asylum as something strange and occult begins to influence the events and leads to a particularly horrifying fate for Mr. White. This is the first time I've read this one since it came out back in the day. This is one of Dan Slott's, who is best known as a Marvel writer, best known for an extensive run on The Amazing Spider-Man, as well as runs on She-Hulk, Iron Man, current writer as of this recording on Fantastic Four. He did some animated series style Batman and really this. And Ryan Souk uh, is best known for doing, actually, I don't know what Souk is best known for. He's got a lot of credits. He started out very much in the Mike Mignola school as an artist. And while his style by this point is starting to change a little, you can still definitely see a heavy Mignola influence. Early on, he did some of the uh, BPRD miniseries, the Hellboy spinoffs, which Maybe he, at that point, was aping Mignola a little more because he was working right in Mignola's universe. The art here is is real nice. I'm yeah. a fan of Sooks, and he does a great job. And for a horror-influenced miniseries, he is a great choice for the artist. Colors are great. The general style is great. Yeah, beautiful stuff. I like 
a lot of what's going on in this story, but I think there are some problems with it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, we referenced it earlier, but the Poison Ivy stuff here, especially with it using Poison Ivy, is really uncomfortable. Yes. The scenes where they're they're breaking out, and uh, who is who is her friend that she goes out with? Magpie. For some age. Magpie. Yeah, they are both in bra and panties for no fucking good reason aside from, hey, let's just draw two women in bra and panties. It's it's gross, it's degrading, and it's pointless. And I cannot wrap my brain around the fact that Ivy is basically trading sex for anything. Yeah. She's poison Ivy. Even at her sex pottiest, she influences people's minds. She would make them believe they had the time of their life and would give them a peck on the cheek and make them believe that. Absolutely. She can do that. The only reason to have her having Magpie have prison sex with random male inmates is because it's a prison story and so that's the kind of thing you do in prison stories yeah in the first i don't know five pages slot does a drop in the soap joke right how yeah what what the what the fuck right that and and sure it doesn't end in brutal rape but that's it's been fucking done to death jesus like it's it's, it's not cute joke yes it's not clever it's not imaginative and I mean, God, like how cliche can you be? On a positive note for the writing, I love Warren White in this. Yeah. I think he's a great character. I think the way he's written is frighteningly realistic for someone who, in all honesty, probably actually does belong in Arkham because he's a sociopath. Exactly. Despite him trying to get out of a massive Ponzi scheme by claiming insanity, he is a sociopath. And so he does have a clinical mental illness. And I love the fact that he's like, okay, I got this change of venue. The the way the judge says it in the beginning in the sentencing, you got yourself sent to the one city where they will... You can find a jury crazy enough to believe you're insane. Fine. Arkham. It's like, boy, you really didn't think this one through, did you? And Joke's you on want- you, fuck boy. Yeah, and you wonder if his lawyers, who do seem shocked by this, didn't know better. Because the, our, the, the mental health facility in Gotham, there aren't any others as far as we know. If you're dubbed criminally insane in Gotham, you go to Arkham. It's not a good place. No, no. We have so many stories that tell us it's not a good place. So uh, I'll, I'll set out what I think is my key objection to this book, aside from the stuff that we've already talked about, aside from the gross stuff, aside from the truly objectionable stuff. I think my problem is with the central premise in that 
we start from a very cool and interesting place. The, the idea of, you know, this, this billionaire scoundrel Madoff type who gets sent to Arkham and he thinks it's going to be uh, easy. And then we see that uh, truly it is a living hell for him. And I feel like we get that book for like two issues, maybe once, once he gets the advice to like make a friend here you know, that stuff is good. It's interesting to watch that character develop. But then we take a hard turn into the demonic shit. And I'm just like, that's that's not what I signed up for. That's not what I wanted from this book. I agree. Absolutely. I think it lasts a little longer than the first two issues. I think it's around issue four because issue three is the Humpty Dumpty issue. Ah, OK. That's you're you're absolutely old. right. It's about halfway through four that the supernatural stuff comes in. Because even the beginning of four is the origin of Aaron Cash, a character who would be used heavily in the Arkham games. Taken straight from here. Yeah, and I think he's an interesting character too. I think he's a great character. But it's right after that that you then start getting this supernatural thing that is not as interesting. Not at all. In the least. And it's like, if you wanted to do this supernatural story, there's an interesting story there, just not in this series. Mm -mm. This series should have continued to focus on an interesting collection of new characters. Slot created most of the inmates who are used here. He creates White, he creates Dumpty, he creates Jane Doe, Junkyard Dog, Death Rattle. None of them feel forced on the reader. None of them feel like, hey, we're creating the next great Bat villain. The next great Bat character. Like, no, I'm just introducing a bunch of characters. Partially, I feel like, because you wanted some stakes here. If you're using Joker, Scarecrow, Riddler, Two-Face, etc., you know none of those guys are going to die by the end of this thing. Joker has some incredible moments, though. Oh, there are some great Joker moments in this story. By creating those characters, there's a good chance that many of them are going to die by the end of this. And that's okay. And none of them are fridged, necessarily. None of them are dead to forward White's plot. They're there to die because of the supernatural plot. And frankly, if you'd gotten rid of that supernatural plot, you probably could have lost some of them and spent more time with White and Dumpty and Jane Doe, who were the three most fleshed out to begin with and probably the three most interesting. Yeah, again, the central idea of this book is how we take... Uh, you know, a scumbag and turn him into, you know, a criminally insane scumbag, not negating your point. I feel like White only breaks in that f- that last issue. And it, it feels very sudden. He gets locked up in a freezer. Jane Doe slices him half to death. And it's at that point that he loses his mind, right? Uh, up to that moment, he had just been like this mewling little rich boy stuck inside Arkham and you know he's complaining to everybody he thinks he or you know orchestrates a way out <laughs> chokes on you but that moment did not feel earned his physical transformation was great that was fun to look at once he comes out of the freezer and he's just like yeah I've I've slipped off my cracker now 
that was fun. But again, it just did not feel earned in that moment. Yeah, I wish they could have spent more time showing him crack. And yes, I, I completely realize I'm using the word crack when his buddy is Humpty Dumpty. That <laughs> was not a pun until I realized it after I said it. Can't take it back now. Nope. But I, I wish we had spent more time with watching White fall apart. Joker has three scenes in this book. And I think that was the perfect amount of Joker for this book. Yep. He's, he, uh, he's, he's, he's pepper. He's, he's seasoning. He's the, just the right amount of paprika. And the first scene with him and White sets, again, a running motif through the book. He says to White, I think you're the worst person I've ever met, which is something that is said over and over throughout the book to Warren White by different people. Different people say to him, I think you're the worst person I've ever met. We got you know, demons that say it. Yeah. White eventually, right before he breaks, says it to Jane Doe, right before she locks him in Mr. Freeze's cell. That's a well-written flourish. And there are a few very clever bits of writing in here. I love, as a nod, there's a whole bit where Humpty Dumpty, through his acts of sort of sad sabotage, caused all of the crazy props on Gotham rooftops to fall over. And they talk about the Sprang Act, that Dick Sprang, legendary Batman artist of the later Golden Age, who drew all those stories with giant typewriters and giant bowling balls. Like, that's a nice little bit of history. That's clever. And one thing I will say was an absolutely clever bit of visual wordplay. When the Riddler is talking to Dr. Carver, quote unquote, in the first issue he addresses her as my dear girl d-e-e-r what we learned i noticed that and i i want to hear you explain it because i didn't get it you're gonna you're about to blow my mind i know doe a deer a female deer oh he fuck he fuck knew me fuck wow <laughs> wow I only know that because I knew that because I've read this before. I knew that that was that Dr. Carver was Jane Doe. So when I saw it, I was like, what a lousy type. Oh, my God. That's not that's freaking brilliant. Oh, that is brilliant. Wow. I just I'm going to have to move the book up like two spots now because that's good. That's some good shit right there. Doesn't negate all of the bad shit, but that's good shit. That is neat. And thank you for explaining that. Because I was I was going to just wonder about that for the rest of my life. Although I should have been able to fucking figure it out after I finished the book. The one other thing I got about this is I really loved those Joker moments. So as as you said, he pops up in three scenes. The stupid fucking shower scene, which got better after the dumb soap joke. When he busts out of prison of Arkham, he says to Two-Face, I'm going to start killing people with uh, with palindrome names. And sure enough, he pops up in a critical moment to, to shoot somebody whose his name was a palindrome. And I'm like, Mwah, chef's kiss. That's some good shit. The book is well-structured. While I don't necessarily agree with all the plot decisions that were made, things that happen at one point are all paid off later. Yep. 
And there are a couple of really neat moments with the character Death Rattle, who, is like, who claims he's see the dead. And it's like, oh, and then at one point it's like, oh, can he? And then it's like, nope. It's immediately subverted. And I love that when the ghosts of the victims of various inmates start showing up, Death Rattle, who's a religious maniac, he's been, various inmates have been taken by these demons. And the victims, his victims are like, this is your time. This is what your calling is. Throw yourself into the fire to bring it out of hell. He's like, yes, yes, I'll do it. And he flings himself in. And the victims goes like, asshole. <laughs> That's great. Or the most minor of the characters slot creates a guy called Lunkhead, who at the beginning destroys uh, Scarface. In the end, is the demon like, any other volunteers? And he's like, me, throw me. He's like, wait, I didn't say anything. And you just see the ventriloquist smiling. And it's like, it's a great one that was set up that ventriloquist and Scarface were going to get their revenge on this guy. And there you go. Cash and Croc, the well was a well structured arc. Cash's arc was well structured in this. I'm going to make me a new wallet. Yep. I love that bit. And while again, not a big fan of the demon stuff in here, Sook drove the hell out of it. Oh, yeah. The, the oh, zombies. Yeah. Sook's Etrigan. I wish Sook would write a freaking, it would draw a freaking Etrigan miniseries any day of the week. He drew a Zatanna miniseries with Morrison. Let him do a Zatanna Etrigan team up. I would be uh, all about that. No, nothing but rhymes and, and, and backward spells, and it's going to take poor Will three days to read the first issue. Another great moment at the end when trying to figure out the solution, you know, there's no such thing as demons. It must have been Scarecrow's fear gas. Put him in the hole for 30 days. What? <laughs> the, look, the, the panel of Crane's face. And he's like, like, I didn't do anything. I think it was, I think it was three months. Three months. Oh God, it was worse than I thought. Yeah. Hold on. Let me, let me double check there. Yeah, three months. <laughs> Worse than I thought. Uh, we're blaming it all on the Scarecrow. Uh, okay. All right, that works. And again, structurally, another is that these are the demons who punish those who committed the sin of pride. The minute they say it, it's like, okay, Warren White, who we've seen, his sin, I mean, yeah, it's, oh, he's a greedy son of a bitch. And I'm sure that's one of his sins. But White's great sin, his cardinal sin, is pride. He's an arrogant bastard and this is not white's last appearance he obviously shows up again he's the one villain dumpty shows up occasionally every now and then but he's a minor character at best there are a few other times white never becomes a focus again but he escalates to being one of the the mob bosses of gotham at various points after uh one year later after infinite crisis He's running the Gotham mobs from inside Arkham. And after the New 52, he's part of Penguin's coalition of the Black and Whites. Him, Penguin, and Black Mask. He appeared briefly in Super Heavy in the Iceberg Lounge. Hey, I guess it's Shark Watch. Because the Great White Shark. <laughs> I forgot, but yeah, Shark Watch. Great White Shark. Shark Watch. My actual final last thing I have to say. Um, the last panel. Nicely done. It comes around is really 
well structured if some of the content within it and some of the plot isn't as good as the framework that it's hung upon. Exactly. So I don't think I have anything else today. Say I'm done. So it's time to put it on the board. Where does this fall against Mad Men across the water? There's more substance. So I think above, but in, I, I think while we can say that this is not a bad book, I think we can also say this is not a great book either. So I think we are looking at the bottom half of the list. Yeah. My ceiling on this one is probably number 28, The Clown at Midnight. It's not better than The Clown. Clown at Midnight is a much bigger swing. That book doesn't necessarily succeed in everything that it does, but it tries more than this book does. This the, the occult stuff at the end is just sort of a, hey, let's do a supernatural thing to wrap this plot up as opposed to digging deeper into what would have made it a more interesting story. Yeah, and just like something like uh, Gotham by Gaslight, I am going to be harder on this book because I know in my heart the book it could have been. So if it's in between The Clown at Midnight 28 and Mad Men Across the Water at 32, that's a, a pretty limited spot. The only sto- the stories in between there are one of my babies, Blades, Batman Overdrive, and Death Cast the Deciding Vote. It's probably better than Death Cast the Deciding Vote, Silent Night of Batman. It's again, it's let's try more than that as despite that story being fun the warren white stuff here is really interesting it just doesn't oh, yeah it peters out it peters yep. out way too quickly i think it above overdrive as well now here's where i'm gonna need your help because it puts it to the below blades blades again also tries to do a character arc with a character in this case the cavalier which the anything with the Cavalier's arc is the Cavalier's arc in the middle is soft. It starts well and it ends well, but there's a softness in the middle to it. And I think White's arc is actually pretty similar. It's got a really strong beginning. It's got a really strong end. And then in the middle, it just gets sort of lost in all of the other chaos in this book. I think uh, objectively... Blades is more fun. Um, okay. and, and again, I, I, I hold a grudge against stuff that I know that could have been better. Uh, six issues of the great white shark becoming the great white shark is better than what we got here. The, the book in my brain is much better. So I, I'm going to hold it against it. And brother Matt, I will always defer to you and Blades. It's, a, it's adorable how much you love that story. More than willing to admit, I've admitted there are 28 stories on this list that are better than Blades. But I think that this one, I think Blades still has something about it that works for me better than this story does. So this makes it our new number 30, Arkham Asylum Living Hell. I, I'm happy with that. It's, now, it's number 30 of 48. So there that's, we go. That's where it deserves. That's about right. So that is three more stories on our list. Next episode, we're going to have 50. 
My goodness. Yeah, we're, we're hitting number 50. Next week, we're going to be joined by our, our next guest. Very exciting. Fellow Comics XF writer, Armand Babu, will stop by, and he's going to join us to talk about three stories of Batman as a member of the Justice League. Ooh. So going deep into the DC universe and out of just our little corner of Gotham on this one. That's scary, Matt. I don't like change. Uh, it's fine. And as a teaser, this one of these stories contains one of my top three Batman moments of all time. Ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to figure it out. Don't don't spoil it for me. So we'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grow. June is dead. Long live June. Long live June. Joshua Wheel and Zach Rabaroff for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on ComicsXF.com with new episodes dropping Thursdays. And you can support the podcast on Patreon where you can get shout outs, bonus content, early episode drops. You can pick a story and you can even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. Be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff that Will and I are writing. Thanks again for another great night, Will. And as always, don't fuck on Matt. (laughs) And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.